Well, if you have a Bible, we're going to look at Acts chapter 12 today. Acts chapter 12. Actually, I want to look at the very end of Acts 11 to begin. Let's pray and ask God's blessing. And Father, I would just ask you today, Lord, that you'll open our hearts to your word and, and what you have to say to us and that you'll speak clearly through me and speak to any needs that are here. We thank you, Father, for your presence being here with us, that you've sustained us through our Christian lives and watched over our families and ourselves, and that you'll continue to do that. And so we thank you for your faithfulness in Jesus' name. Amen. When you're looking at Acts chapter 11, I want to skip down to verse 19. The first 18 verses is basically Peter, he's rehearsing what happened at Cornelius' house in chapter 10. It's basically just a repeat of chapter 10 before the church at Jerusalem. But in chapter 19, this is picking up where back in chapter 8, verse 1, left off. Because it says in 19, it says, Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen. Because that's what it talks about back in 18.1. The church was scattered in Jerusalem. So it says, Now when they were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen, and they traveled as far as Phoenice and Cyprus and Antioch, and when they were scattered... This is just the regular people of the church. It said in King James, it says they were preaching the word to none but the Jews only. Actually, the word is not your typical word for preaching. It actually means to gossip or talk. Laleo, it's the word for like you have a conversation, you talk. They were just going around having conversations, talking to people about probably their experiences, their testimonies, what God had done in their life. And they're sharing the word with them as they went. It says some of them went as far as, it says in verse 20, some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which when they were come to Antioch, they went as far as Antioch and they spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. So for your own information, Antioch was the third largest city at that time in the world. Rome was the largest and Alexandria down in Egypt was the second largest, but Antioch was a huge city, and it was a major player in evangelism at the time. It was where Paul had his base, where he was sent from. It was a big church that was there. We see that in verse 21, the hand of the Lord was with them, these people from Jerusalem that went forth preaching, and it says a great number believed. A lot of Gentiles believed, it says in verse 21, and turned to the Lord. Word gets back to Jerusalem. We got a lot of people getting converted. God's Spirit is moving in Antioch. As a result, look at verse 22. When tidings of these things came into the ears of the church which was in Jerusalem, they sent forth Barnabas, and that he should go as far as Antioch. They send Barnabas to Antioch. He gets there. It says when he sees what God has done by his grace. Now, King James said he's glad. It's our word charis. It's where we get our word rejoicing. He is excited when he sees what God has done. Look what it says there. Verse 23, talking about Barnabas. And when he, Barnabas, came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad. He rejoiced. But he didn't stop there. He exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. Verse 23. So he wants to make sure these converts, he sees God's hands there. And he wants to make sure that they make it to the end. He's not just going to assume because God's grace was there and evidently granted them repentance unto life that that somehow guarantees they're going to make it to the end. He doesn't just assume it. The name Barnabas, you know what that means? Son of encouragement. And that's exactly what it says he does there. It says that he encouraged them, exhorted them. That's the word paraclete for where we get the Holy Spirit's ministry. 
come upside and encourage us, sometimes rebuke us, but it's to encourage us to move on and, and stay with the Lord. And that's what he does there. It says he exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. He wants them to cleave unto the Lord. Cleave, that word means to stick fast to, to be glued. It's like you take a label off sometimes and, you know, you get it off one finger, it sticks to that, you just can't get rid of it, you know, and kind of get frustrated at times. It's sticking to you like that. But he's wanting them to stick to the Lord like a sticky label you can't get rid of. That's in essence what he's saying. And how does that happen? How does that happen? It tells us right there. It says with purpose of heart. And that's what we need to have is purpose of heart. We're living in a day where there is more pollution coming through the Internet, on TV. You can't even watch the Olympics anymore and just leave it to sports. They got to bring in all this other stuff in on it. It's ridiculous. The only way we're going to survive in this world, I'm really concerned about my children. I'm sure you're concerned about yours because if Jesus called his day an evil and adulterous generation, I don't know what we would call this generation. But that doesn't mean that it's like, well, we shouldn't have kids. You know, there's no hope for our children. Because when you look at Daniel and the three Hebrew boys, where did they go? They were sent as young men, young teenage boys, into a totally corrupt society. But what did they have before they got there? I guarantee you, it's just like with Timothy. Their parents, their mothers, maybe their grandmother, their fathers, got the word in them, lived a godly life. And they get into that environment. It didn't overwhelm them, did it? Daniel and the three Hebrew boys. But when you read chapter one, what does it say about them? We need to have purpose in our heart. That's what Daniel did. He had a regenerate heart. He was following the Lord. And it says this about Daniel. It says that he purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. He's like, I'm serving the Lord God of heaven. And what he knew of the law, he says, I won't go this far. I've drawn a line. I purposed in my heart. I am not going to defile myself. Do to me what you want to. And God honored that, didn't he? That is what Barnabas is encouraging these people to do with purpose of heart. You've got to determine, I'm sticking with the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not leaving him, no matter what. And other translations say it this way. If we don't do that, we'll fall, all of us. All of us will. The ESV says that he encouraged them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. The NAU says... Remain to the Lord with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. And Barnabas encouraged through the NIV, it says, to remain true to the Lord with all their heart. Listen, it's true that God keeps us and we are eternally secure. We, I believe in that. But there are two sides to the same mountain as it's been described. You've got this side where it is God's sovereignty and he sovereignly saves who he will and keeps him. But you have the other side, which is equally true, just as true in scripture, and that is what? Man's responsibility. Now they seem like they would contradict each other, but they don't, and like they say, they meet up at the top and there's a cloud up there. How that all works out, we don't know. But this verse here, what he's exhorting them to, he's not saying, hey, just kick back and take it easy. God will take care of you. Once saved, always saved. That's not what he tells them, is it? He says, you have to have purpose of heart. That is your responsibility. That's my responsibility because God won't do that for us, will he? He is not going to give us purpose of heart. Now, he has a purpose for us. 
Romans 8.28 says, We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. He's got a purpose for our lives, everybody in here that's saved. And He won't let us go. If you're His, He will not let you go until His purpose is fulfilled. But He's not going to do anything outside of our willing to follow Him, is He? We have to be in agreement in it, and that's where our purpose comes in. So we have to purpose in our hearts, as I said, to be faithful to the Lord. And that's in everything. If you would put something there in Acts 11 and turn back to Psalm 112. I'd just like to look at this psalm in light of that. Psalm 112. And it says this, Psalm 112, verse 1. It's a short psalm, 10 verses. It says, Praise ye the Lord. Blessed is the man that fears the Lord, that delights greatly in his commandments. His seed shall be mighty upon earth. The generation of the upright shall be blessed. Wealth and riches shall be in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Unto the upright there arises light in the darkness. He is gracious, full of compassion and righteousness. A good man shows favor and lends. He will guide his affairs with discretion. Surely, and look in verses 6, 7, and 8, it says, Surely he shall not be moved forever. The righteous shall be in everlasting remembrance. Look at verse 7. He shall not be afraid of evil tidings. Why? Because his heart is what? Fixed or steadfast. Fixed, steadfast, doing what? Trusting in the Lord. His heart, because of that, verse 8, is established, and he shall not be afraid until he see his desire upon his enemies. He has dispersed, he's given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. His horns shall be exalted with honor. The wicked shall see it and be grieved. He shall gnash with his teeth and melt away, and the desire of the wicked shall perish. The wicked can't stand it. They can't stand the fact that the righteous prosper. We'll see, that's what we're going to see today. Herod is out to destroy the church, and he starts off with James, moves on to Peter. He's just going to destroy all the leadership there and hopefully destroy the church. That's his plan, to gain favor with people. That's his only thing he wants. It says the wicked will gnash their teeth, but it says a righteous man will be steadfast, fixed. His heart is fixed on the Lord, trusting in him. That has got to be our side of it steadfast, resolved. We're not going back into the world. We're not going to let this pressure to be politically correct. It's coming on fast and furious now. We're not going to let that get us to back off of where we should be. And we're going to stick out more and more and more. That's the way it is. That's the way it'll be. And it won't be easy. If you go back to Acts, we're promised that it won't be easy. So if you look in Acts chapter 14 and verse 22, this was kind of a way that they did things. Paul comes to see the people that he had preached to, verse 21, Acts 14, 21. And when they would preach the gospel to that city and taught many, they returned. So he goes back again to the places he had been, to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch. He tells them again. They're going to hear it again, confirming the souls of the disciples. And he exhorts them to continue to remain steadfast in the faith. But he tells them this, he says, it's not going to be easy, folks, that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. Now, that hasn't changed, has it? I don't think it has. 
The Bible hadn't changed, and that's the word that they had then, and that's what he did. He encouraged them, you've got to stay steadfast with the Lord because you have much tribulation coming your way. It's going to try to get you off the path, and he's saying you have to stay with it. You look back at 11, going to finish up here, in verse 24 of chapter 11, I thought it was interesting that it says this about Barnabas. It says he was a good man. That's why he exhorted them. He sees the grace of God, the hand of God on these people. It encouraged him. He's a person that likes to encourage people. And he's like, hey, fellas, I see what God has done. Stick with it. He'll bring you through. He'll get you through here. And it says he was a good man. Now, it also adds that he was full of the spirit. That's what made him a good man and able to help these people out. It wasn't just because he's just like one of these nice guys that's always real positive. <laughs> it wasn't like that. He was full of the spirit and faith. And it says as a result of that, look at the end of verse 24, much people were added unto the Lord. And he also was a good man in the sense that he wasn't going to try to take on this whole situation here in Antioch by himself. What does it say he went on to do? Barnabas, he went to Tarsus to seek out Saul. He's like, I need help. And I know who this guy is. I know Saul of Tarsus. But he's the one, if you remember back in Acts chapter 9, that everybody was afraid. I don't know if you remember. Everybody was afraid of Saul of Tarsus because he was the one that was persecuting the church. And Barnabas was the one. He got him and he took him back to the apostles and stood up for him. He was his friend. So he looks for Paul. He's like, I know who this guy is. I know his knowledge of the word that God's hands on him and I need his help. So he goes, he finds Paul in Tarsus. He brings him back. And you know what it says? Could you imagine sitting under I would definitely sit down for a year to hear this. You know, you got Paul and Barnabas teaching you for a year, teaching those people in Antioch for a year. That's something. That would have been a ministry to sit under. So as you finish out that chapter 11, the church of Jerusalem, they send prophets to Antioch. And one of them, Agabus, he tells them, he says, look, there's going to be this great famine over the land. These people in Jerusalem will be in need, which they were. And so the people at Antioch helped them out, sent relief. By the hand, it says, of Paul and Barnabas. And that brings us to chapter 12. So I want to read this entire chapter. It's not that long, 25 verses, and then talk about some things here. So it says in Acts chapter 12, Now about that time, Herod the king, it says, stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church. And he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. And then were the days of the unleavened bread. And when he had apprehended him, he put him in prison, delivered him to four quaternions of soldiers to keep him, intending after Passover, it's not Easter, it's Paschal, Passover, to bring him forth to the people. And Peter therefore was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. And when Herod would have brought him forth, the same night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and the keepers before the door kept the prison. And behold, the angel of the Lord came upon him, and a light shined in the prison, and he smote Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise up quickly. And his chains fell off from his hands. And the angel said unto him, Gird thyself, bind on thy sandals. And so he did. And he said unto him, Cast thy garment about thee, and follow me. And he went out and followed him, and knew not that it was true which was done by the angels, but he thought he saw a vision. And when they were past the first and the second ward, they came into the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and passed on through one street, and forthwith the angel departed from him. 
And when Peter was come to himself, he said, well, Now I know of a surety that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me out of the hand of Herod from all the expectation of the people of the Jews. And when he had considered the thing, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a damsel came to hearken named Rhoda. And when she knew Peter's voice, she opened not the gate for gladness, but ran in and told how Peter stood before the gate. And they said unto her, You're crazy, you are mad. But she constantly affirmed that it was even so. And then said they, Well, it's got to be his guardian angel, his angel. But Peter, he's out there, Come on, fellas, continually knocking. And when they had opened the door and saw him, they were astonished or amazed. But he, beckoning unto them with the hand to hold their peace, declared unto them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Go show these things unto James and to the brethren. And he departed and went into another place. Now as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers what was become of Peter. And when Herod had sought for him and found him not, he examined the keepers and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and there abode. And Herod was highly displeased with them of Tyre and Sidon, but they came with one accord to him, and having made Blastus the king's chamberlain their friend, desired peace because their country was nourished by the king's country. And upon a set day Herod arrayed in royal apparel sat upon his throne and made an oration unto them, and the people gave a shout, saying, It's the voice of a god, not of a man. Immediately the angel of the Lord smote him, because he gave not God the glory, and he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. But the word of God grew and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry and took with them John, whose surname was Mark. I want to say there are two themes that flow through the entire book of Acts, and they are the two themes that we find here in Acts chapter 12. Both of them are here. And the one is, we see the theme of the power of Satan. The power of Satan, we see it exhibited all through the book of Acts. It's reality, it's brutality, and it's ugliness, how he tries to destroy the church. The other theme that we see here throughout the book of Acts, but especially here in chapter 12, is the power of God and its sovereignty, its majesty, and its glory. That is what the book of Acts is about. It's the battle of two kingdoms, more or less, to say it that way. So we see the power of God. In Acts chapter 2, God pours out His Spirit on the day of Pentecost. We have tongues of fire that come. The wind that is there. These men speaking in languages that they had never learned supernaturally. It's not like with us. Nobody knows what anybody's saying. No, they all understood what was being said. They said, we hear it in our own languages. They're glorifying God. I mean, that had to be quite a thing. And after that, we have Peter preaches a powerful sermon Anointed by the Holy Spirit, 3,000 people are saved, baptized, and filled with the Holy Spirit. I mean, it's a clear demonstration of the power of God. And it moves right on in to Acts chapter 3. It says they gained favor with the people. Peter and John are going into the temple. A lame man is there. He's begging from them. They say, well, silver and gold have we none. But we have something to give you and demonstrate you. And we're going to do it right here in front of a lot of people. The power of God. And in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, he reaches down. It says, picks him up, and it says, immediately, this man, it says, laying from his mother's womb. 42 years that guy had been there, laying from his mother's womb. Everyone knew it. 
He's walking and leaping and hanging on to those guys and a crowd gathers around. And Peter preaches another sermon. Another sermon. And we find out in Acts chapter 4, not 3,000 this time, 5,000 people were saved. 5,000 people saved. And do you think that the devil is just going to lie down and be like, oh, hey, my kingdom's being destroyed. I'm not going to do anything about that. No. So all this happens in Acts chapter 4. The leaders take over who are manipulated by the spirit of darkness. And Peter and John are arrested. They're put in prison and they're threatened. Here's the pattern that we have in the book of Acts. You'll see God's power, Satan's power, and we see it in here in Acts 4. It's in Acts 4. It's also in Acts 12. The church's response then is to do what when the devil comes against them? Pray. And that's what we have in Acts chapter 4. They gather to pray. And they pray to God, you, Lord, that made the heavens and the earth and all that is the sovereign God. Behold their threatenings. Look down and see what they're doing. And they said, grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word. That was the church's answer to Satan's power and threats. And did God answer that prayer? We know what happened in Acts 4. He sends an earthquake. And also it says that they went forth after that earthquake. That wasn't the end of it. They spake with boldness and miracles took place. Here, once again, the devil's going to try another routine. I'm not going to just come from the outside and have you arrested and threatened. We have Acts chapter 5, and the significant thing there is that's not trouble coming and the devil coming from outside the church. Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira tells us what? He's coming from inside the church. It says he fills their hearts to do what? To deceive the apostles. And the apostles are the foundation of the church. But here's one thing that Ananias and Sapphira didn't understand and something that we need to understand. And that is that the church of God represented truth. It says in Timothy, it is the pillar and ground of truth. That's what God's church is. It represented truth, holiness, and the power of God to destroy the works of the devil. Just like with Achan in the book of Joshua, God is not going to let his church at this infant stage be contaminated in its foundation. He's not going to let lies and deception corrupt its foundation. And so he deals with it, doesn't he? Because God is zealous for his truth. What did he do? Here was God's answer to the devil trying to move in. He sent a loud, clear message to anybody that if you think that my church is just a social club, or someplace that you're just enamored with miracles and healings, but you're not interested in truth. By a word from Peter, what happened to Ananias and Sapphira? God's power was demonstrated in another way, wasn't it? His power can be demonstrated in blessing, but his power can also be demonstrated how? In judgment. And what happened? We read after that happened that they both fell dead in you know, there's commentaries out there. They want to criticize what Peter said, that he just didn't give them a chance to make things right. I mean, that's Peter speaking by the Spirit of God. It's not like Peter dreamed up what he was going to say. But it says it calls the people to fear because it says in Acts 5 that great fear came upon all the church and not just the church and as, as many as heard these things. 
My point is this. We see all through the book of Acts, you see the power of God, you see the power of Satan, and they're at odds. Satan's trying to move in with his power and his deception, and God overcomes that with his power and his wisdom. Because Peter has the Holy Spirit show him what's going on here, supernaturally reveals that to him, and God's power, like I said, was displayed in judgment. But we have it again in Acts chapter 6. What do we have there? The devil's moving in again within the church again trying to cause division. And how is he doing that? The Greeks and the Jews, they're widows. They're saying, hey, we're not all being treated fairly. We're not being treated equal. God moves in again to put a stop to that. How does he do that? He raises up Stephen and six others. And it says they were filled with the Holy Spirit and faith. They're able to take care of the situation. He organizes the church, doesn't allow that to happen. He makes the priority of the church to be what it should be, which is what? Prayer and the Word of God. Say, that's what's going to be the priority here. We got deacon, we got people out there. They're going to take care of all these needs that are met. I'm not going to let the devil move in and divide this church over something like that. And Stephen, it says, moves on along with Philip. They were more than just deacons, right? And it says that Stephen performs great wonders and miracles among the people. Here again, the power of God demonstrated through his life. And once again, Satan doesn't just sit down, does he? Because what happens to Stephen? He gets drugged before the council, and they take him out and stone him. And who else is raised up by the devil at this point to try to destroy the church? Saul of Tarsus, he is right there with Stephen. He's consenting to him being stoned. And we read, he goes and he is wreaking havoc on the church, dragging people out of their houses, putting them in prison. But once again, is that where it stops? Because God used what? The devil thinks he's causing Stephen to be martyred. That's going to somehow slow things down. And Paul was somehow going to slow things down. No, that's God in his wisdom always overcomes. That's what we need to see overcomes Satan's plans, doesn't he? And turns them around and works them out for the good of his people and his church. Because Stephen's martyr, that was not a waste of a life. Because who's one witnessing that? And the grace of which he died. Looked up into heaven, that was a God-anointed death that took place there. And who did that prick in his heart? Saul. Getting him ready for that Damascus Road experience. And him who the devil raised up to destroy the church, Saul, God lays him low on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. It's all through the book of Acts. And you've got this conflict going on here, the power of God versus the power of Satan. And here's what we need to see to bring it home to us. It's not just the book of Acts. That is our lives as Christians. That's the way it is. It's the Christian life. Because yes, just like there, it's not just all the devil having his thumb on the church, is it? And it's the same way with us. We experience God's blessings. We experience answers to prayer. We experience his presence. But if anybody thinks that the Christian life is just one unending blissful walk, it's time to get saved because it doesn't work that way. Because we have his blessing just like the church did, but we also have Warfare that we're engaged in, don't we? We've talked about that, and it's called a struggle, a wrestling match. If you're going to say you can't preach on suffering, you need to take 1 Peter out of your Bible, because that's what that book is all about. It's all through the Bible from beginning to end. And persecution. There are difficult times that all of us are going to experience. The devil is going to try to get us to quit. 
But the point is, as we've seen, and I've just talked about in the book of Acts, God's power always prevails, doesn't it? For his children, because the devil seeks to destroy it, and God seeks to do a work in us. So he's sovereignly manipulating everything that's happening. And we have these scriptures, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Thanks be to God who always causes us to triumph in Christ Jesus. So he takes the schemes of the devils, like we said, we just saw it time after time, and turns them around for the good of his people. Because it says in Romans 8.28, a verse we all know, we know that all things work together for good. It's not saying that all things are good, because some things that happen to us, just like the apostles getting beaten, the visions trying to happen, all of these problems, they're not good, but all things work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. Because we heard a message down and we were out in Arizona, excellent message. This guy was talking about the sovereignty of God and about answers to prayer. And he's like, so sometimes you get a raise and sometimes that raise is delayed. Sometimes your healing is manifested right away. Sometimes it's not manifested right away. But either way, it's God doing a work in you for your good. That's what it's all about because the bottom line is not us getting a raise or not getting a raise. The bottom line is he wants to, this is his purpose. And this is what we need to keep in mind through everything we're going through. What is God's purpose? Do you know how, what it goes on to say in Romans 8? That we may be conformed to the image of his son. And like this man said, we're getting closer to the day we're going to die. And do you think on the day you die and you stand before the Lord, you're going to care that you went 10 years with a low-paying job? If through that God conformed you to the image of Christ, that's all we're going to care about, isn't it? That's all that's going to matter at that point. Nothing else is going to matter, no matter how hard your life was. We have to look at our trials that God is doing a work in us, and the delays are doing a work in us to try to get us conformed to His image. That's His purpose. And our purpose has to be, God, I want you to do that work as unpleasant as it may be. And it is unpleasant. I could cry right now. It's unpleasant at times. In Acts chapter 12, I'm saying we see what we see through the book of Acts. The power of Satan versus the power of God. And I've entitled the message, Herod's Vain Attempt. Because it's vain in many ways, his attempt. And the Herod that's talked about here, we're going to get into this text now, is Herod Agrippa I. Herod is a name that was commonly used for these kings. It's a family name. This guy that's in here in Acts chapter 12 is the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great, you'll remember, was the one that tried to kill all the babies. He's trying to eliminate any competition, and he's thinking he's going to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. His uncle, this Herod we're talking about here in Acts chapter 12, his uncle was the one that had John the Baptist beheaded. He's called Herod too. And Pilate sent Jesus before him. What we have here is these Herods, we've got a family lineage, a family line that is rotten to the core. They're evil, ruthless men. Tools of the devil. They're used from the time of the Lord Jesus Christ right on through. Their only purpose is to snuff out Christianity at its roots. That's all they are about. Right here we have Herod. Look what it says in verse 1. Now at this time, Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church. He causes problems and he's like, I'm going after the big boys. And so verse 2, it says, he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. 
This isn't the one that wrote the book of James. That was Jesus's half brother that wrote the book of James. This is James, the brother of John, and he has him beheaded. When he sees that everybody likes that, they're happy with his death, he goes on because this is what this guy is all about. He wants people to like him. So he arrests Peter. Look in verse 3, and because he saw it please the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also, and these were the days of unleavened bread. Now let me ask you a question. What had any of these people done that deserved the king to arrest them and start planning executions? Nothing. I mean, you've got the best citizens a kingdom could have. These people are law-abiding citizens. They're going to be paying their taxes. The only reason this man who should be executing justice... The only reason he's not executing justice and executing Christians is why? Because he wants the favor of people. That is the only reason he's doing this. So he arrests him. And verse 5 lays out what's going on here. It lays the battle out. Peter, therefore, was kept in prison. That's Herod. That's Herod and his demonic power being exercised. Getting ready to kill him. But, verse 5, and we got to love the buts in the Bible. That's what gives us hope. Because here's the power of God. But prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. So it moves on, verses 14 to 17. We're not going to read them again. It tells the miraculous deliverance of Peter. Uh, verses 21 to 23 tells of the death of Herod. Look at verses 21. I do want to look at those again. He does all this. He has Peter arrested. He's one to execute him, but God delivers Peter out of that prison, and Peter goes off to who knows where in hiding. Verse 21, though, after all that, it says, And upon a set day, Herod, arraigned in royal apparel, sat upon his throne, made an oration unto them, and the people gave a shout, saying, It's the voice of a God and not of a man. And it says, And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him. Why? Because he gave not God the glory, and he was eaten of worms. Josephus says he was dead five days later. The worms started eating him. Five days later, he was dead. This account here is verified by Josephus. said that robe he wore had these little things on it that when the sun hit it, it just shone. I mean, he's making himself out to be something. It might have seemed to that early church at that time, that Herod can just do whatever he wants to, didn't it? He beheads James. It's like God didn't stop that. He gets Peter. Well, Peter gets away, but he can do whatever he wants to. And this guy's just going to go on doing whatever he wants to in his power. And it might have seemed that way. But a day came when God said what? He said, that's enough from you. Enough is enough. And Herod the boaster, the one they called God, was reduced to worms, to being eaten by worms. And you know why that is? Because what does it say in Galatians 5? It says that God is not mocked. He is not going to be mocked by a man like Herod. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows, that shall he reap. And Paul begins that by saying, be not deceived because Herod thought he had it all thought he could do what he wanted was going to get his way could do whatever he wanted to God's people and that's what the devil does doesn't he he tells people just go on and live in sin do what you want to do live it up you only got one life just like with Herod then he ends up 
bringing on problems in your life and in the end you're eaten by worms because God is not mocked. And we got three characters in this chapter. Three main characters and two of them are dead. One to the glory of God, James, and one because he did not give glory to God. And we've got Peter who's released <laughs> to further tell of the glory of God. In the end, God's sovereign will is done because his power is going to prevail every time. What we need to see here and through the book of Acts and through the entire Bible is, I know I'm not telling you something we don't know, but ultimate power belongs to God. Ultimate power does not belong to the devil, to his empire, to his minions, but to God. So when I say there's a battle going on here between the power of God and the power of Satan, it's not what they call dualism, where you've got equal powers fighting and we have to wait to the end to see who's going to win. It's not like that, is it? The devil has got totally limited powers. God manipulates him however he wants to. God has, we need to remember, ultimate power. You know, we know that from the book of Job. He is definitely limited because God's will is done. And we see that in verse 24 because through it all, this is what prevails. Verse 24, the word of God grew and multiplied. No matter how much the devil tries to stop it, God's will will prevail. And that's the way it is because what did Jesus say in Matthew 16? Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And what was the rock that he's talking about? It wasn't Peter, like the Catholics say. It wasn't the other apostles. It was this confession that Jesus, you are the anointed Savior, the Christ, the Son of God, that you are the answer to the sin problem of this world. And that is going to prevail. It will ultimately prevail. It grew and multiplied. Herod is not going to prevail against it, and others besides Herod have tried down through the years, and nobody has ever prevailed. Many emperors in Rome tried to totally stamp out Christianity. The last one was Diocletian, 303. New church was built. He says, I want that whole church to be totally leveled to the ground. He, he demanded that every scripture, all scriptures be collected and burned. That was an edict that he gave. And the first edict against Christians was, he says, you can't worship. Your worship is banned. All your scriptures have to be turned in. And we're going to arrest all the clergy, which a lot of that happened. But there's a lot of people that are like, you do what you want to. I'm not turning in my Bible. I'm not turning in my scriptures. They didn't have Bibles back then. But his edict was, if you didn't sacrifice to the Roman gods, he was a conservative. The conservative emperors, the ones that were really the good conservative emperors, were taking Rome back to their roots. And their roots were, you sacrifice to all of our gods. Because the gods, they think, are the ones that made Rome what it was. The ones that weren't conservative didn't care, and they didn't persecute Christians. But not Diocletian. He did. Last great persecution. But here's the thing. Did it work? This is 303. And it says, when you read history, that persecution failed as a policy. And part of it was these people in Rome were starting to wake up to the fact, we're tired of this bloodshed, we're tired of seeing these people that are good, kind, just people being butchered for no apparent reason. And not only that, they're seeing the way they die. And they're like, there is something to this religion that these people can die this way with a smile on their face. 
And they wanted to know more about it. And as they learned more about what Christian teaching was, they started realizing this is the answer to our problems. We need to get out and witness more to people. We do. I'm including myself in that. I was talking to a, a guy in that church. I was out in Arizona and he was telling me he goes to the community college there and just walks around witnessing to people. And he says 90% of these young people there will engage in conversation and they want to talk. He goes, they are so void of truth. They're so tired of hearing everything's relative. They want some, some stability in their lives. And he's had several of them get saved through doing that. He goes out there every week. I'm like, man, I wish you were here in my town. I'd be going out with you. But we can do that, can't we? So you don't know until you start going out. I mean, back when we were going out on the streets a lot, a lot of young people about that age, they're wanting to hear truth. Because there's something in them, if God's dealing with them, that they get tired of all this relative truth is relative. We don't know what's right and wrong. And they've got a conscience that's telling them what you're hearing is not right. And when you speak truth to them, it rings with their conscience. It doesn't work that way, Caleb. He's been out on the streets a few times. We see what's happening here. When Herod dies, I think the devil, with all his attempts through all these emperors and King Herod and all his attempts to stamp out Christianity, to me, I'm looking at that thing. The devil has got to be the most frustrated creature in existence, in creation. So he tries, he kills James to stop the spread of Christianity. And then he captures Peter, ready to kill him. God thwarts that keeps that from happening. So he's got one apostle dead, one apostle freed from prison. And he's thinking, somehow this has got to work out for me. But either way, what happens? What's the devil's goal? The devil's goal is to stop truth, to stop the word of God. And yet it doesn't work because we just read verse 24. It said, nevertheless, through all of this, because Peter didn't live a whole lot longer, 30 more years after that, they're all going to be gone pretty quick, the apostles. But God's word, it keeps moving on. It grows and multiplies. And that's a train. They're not going to stop. The devil's not going to stop. How's it going to be for us? What's our attitude going to be? We have two cases here of one being martyred, one being supernaturally delivered. Luke likes to have a lot of the supernatural deliverances in the book of Acts. So what's it going to be for us? Some people are like, I want to be a martyr for Jesus. And this sounds crazy, but literally in the early church, in the early years of the church, there were people that couldn't wait to be martyred because they thought, like the Muslims, that was just going to guarantee them a place in heaven. I mean, is that our attitude? We're just going to, you know, stick our neck out and please, you know, I'll even put a little marker dot on there to give you a good place to cut. Is that the way it should be? Because the Bible says, though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, give my body to be burned. It says, if I have not love, it profits me nothing. And then you have the other extreme, or bless God, I'm done suffering for Jesus. I've had enough suffering. I'm going to be raptured and live the abundant life until that happens because I have great faith. Is that what the Bible presents, really? It also says that James and Stephen had great faith. It said Stephen was a man filled with the Holy Ghost and faith, so what was his problem? Right? <laughs> he didn't make it very long, did he? What I think the key to the, the key answer, the key to the answer is found in, we're back to Daniel and those three Hebrew boys. This is the where our attitude ought to be towards our society that we're facing now and whatever comes our way. Nebuchadnezzar told him what? He says, you guys, when you hear the, the band start up, you better kneel down and worship. And what was their answer to him? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in the matter. 
If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thy hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. So what does our attitude have to be? We've got to get back to where no compromise, no compromise, kill us, whatever you got to do. But it is not going to happen that we're going to compromise whatever comes our way. Amen. That's got to be the key. So what's the responsibility, though, we have? The responsibility that we have is to what? Somebody here gets in prison, gets whatever. What's our responsibility? It's in verse five. It's to pray. Verse 5, Peter was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. That's what they did for Peter because they didn't know what God's will was, did they? They really didn't know. It could have been he was going to get executed too. God in his graciousness, though, gave them what? He gave them a week. They had a week of Passover to be interceding for him and they interceded for him. It wasn't just a little bit of prayer here and there. It says that they prayed without ceasing. That is the word for fervently. Ek tenos. Ek means out. Tenos means stretched. They are stretching themselves out like a runner. They're putting everything they have into it. And that's the word that's used of Jesus when he prayed in the garden. It says being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. That's the same word, fervently. And it's to the point it says his sweat as great drops of blood fell. What that means is when you're praying that way for something, it's like you're not wavering in your display of your devotion. In other words, you are intent on what's going on there. Devotion or interest is what that word means. I was thinking of Mr. Rudy's wife. Some people are that way. She was that way. You would talk with her and she was like she was intent and interested and devoted to everything you were saying. And that was one thing that, you know, you always thought, well, she really likes me. She pays attention to everything I say. She's devoted. She's interested. And he's saying that's the way they were when they prayed for Peter. They were like, we are intent. There's probably other things they needed to pray about. But it said the church met for prayer all the time. But at that point, they got a crisis on their hands. And it's saying they are intent, praying fervently, this devoted, single devotion to what they're doing. Night and day, because... When did he show up? He didn't show up in the middle of the afternoon. He's showing up late in the middle of the night and finds them doing what? Praying. That's what it's all about. That's what we need to do. So our attitude should be what? I'm going to be faithful to God, no compromise, and I'm going to fervently pray that this situation changes. And if it doesn't, I'm not bowing the knee. It's not just here we have a case where he's in prison, in chains, an impossible situation. It may not be that, but we may be looking at an impossible situation in the natural, whatever it is we're looking at. Whether you got a loved one that needs to be saved, his chains falling off his hands, it's just as difficult, if not more, for the chains and someone's heart to fall off to where they can receive the gospel, believe me. And that may be the impossible situation. It could be a healing trial. It could be a mental battle you're in. It seems like this is never going to break or whatever it could be. A lot of impossible situations. Peter's got four soldiers guarding him in shifts of three. They're never tired. Two of them are chained to him. Two are guarding the doors. 
and God delivers him by an angel. That's the second time in the book of Acts God delivered his apostles by an angel. What about Jesus in Luke 4? You say, what about him? <laughs> in Luke 4, well, Luke 4 says they were so mad at him for preaching the word. You know, it's funny. You hear a lot of these preachers today say, don't ever tell people that nothing happened because it was a lack of faith. Well, I mean, Jesus did that in Luke 4, and he got them so riled up, they're going to throw him down a cliff because he told them basically they didn't have faith in these Gentile heathens did, and God answered their prayer. But it says this, that he passing through the midst of him went his way. It wasn't his time. And God can grant deliverance. He can. James died. So did Stephen. But like I said, we need to remember that even through their deaths, the word of God multiplied and grew because Paul watched the death of Stephen. Had a great impact on him. And also, Stephen's persecution led to what? It led to the word being scattered. God had a purpose in it. We need to remember that. I remember back in the day they get upset because people were getting kidnapped and brainwashed and they're acting like that's like some kind of severe persecution and totally traumatizing you or whatever. It is nothing compared to what's going on in this world now and through the book of Acts. But even if anything like that happens and persecution starts up, we need to remember that there's a purpose to it all. That's what we're seeing. God's power will override anything the devil's trying to do. For an illustration of that, Jim Elliott, you all know about Jim Elliott, went down with four other missionaries to Ecuador in 56, and they all had guns. All of them had guns. They easily could have shot and killed the natives that speared them to death. And that's what other missionaries had done. Instead, they determined before they went, we are not going to shoot anybody. They shot their guns. You know what they did? They shot their guns into the air just to frighten the Indians because they weren't going to do it. And it cost them their lives. They stuck to their decision. All right. They lost their lives. They were martyred. They were young men. But was that the end of it? Did the devil prevail through those Indians? And they were wicked people. But the fact that they didn't shoot them the Akas, that was one thing they didn't understand, and that's one thing that stuck with them. We're saying God sends his angels, sent his angel to Peter, sends his angels many times. Steve Saint, the son of one of the missionaries that was killed, he found out about his father's death years later from these Aka Indians, and they told him that at the time they were being killed, the Aka Indians saw a multitude of angels in the sky and heard them singing. And they never forgot that and never got over it. God's power is displayed in deliverance, but his power is also displayed, isn't it, in martyrdom. His grace and power on the lives of people, whether it's angels singing or you read accounts in Martyr's Mirror, Fox's Book of Martyr. These people being burned at the stake, I mean, they, they jump out of those buildings when they were on fire in 9-11 because they couldn't stand the heat. That's how bad it is to be burned to death. People would rather fall to their death than to be burned to death. And yet, multitudes of people were burned by the Catholics and others at the stake, singing hymns. That's just the grace of God. But to me, that is the power of God being demonstrated just as much as deliverance by an angel. And that's what we'll need to trust the Lord for, isn't it, in the days to come? I think so. So we need to be, as Barnabas told the church in Antioch, steadfast in our commitment to the Lord. What is going to be the end of those that oppose God? What's going to be the end of them? Herod, like I said, was just struck by an intense, severe 
intestinal disease by those worms. Diocletian, you know how he ended his life? The one that tried to stamp out the, the Christian church in 303 ended in suicide and on and on. Hitler tried to wipe out Christianity and Jews died of suicide. So here's the, the bottom line. God and his word will triumph in the end. Heaven and earth may pass away, Jesus said, but my words will never pass away. Here is the plain lesson. If we oppose Jesus, we lose. Whoever that is. Whoever opposes Jesus loses. If we stay with Jesus, we win, don't we? We may feel small and insignificant, we may feel overwhelmed, overpowered, and bewildered at times. Amen? But if we stick with him, we will win. That's what the Bible says in the end. And let's just be found to be faithful, praying people. That's what we need to have. And we'll be on the winning side. We'll end with this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, Paul says, though, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and that we can see clearly through the book of Acts and especially here in Acts chapter 12 that no matter how the devil comes against us, Lord, and whether we're delivered or whether we die, Father, that you will be glorified and that we will prevail. Your power will prevail in the end and will prevail through that. And we thank you, Lord, for this word of encouragement and that we can stay with you. And we exhort all of us here, Lord, that we will remain steadfast and faithful to you with purpose of heart, Lord, that we're not going to compromise in this world of compromise. And I just ask, Lord, that you'll do that. You'll make us light. You'll make us salt in this world as we travel through this world and make us bold to witness to your truth. And that's my prayer today for us in Jesus' name. Amen.